Hey folks, Joyce Vance here. Merrick Garland has now completed his first year as Attorney General. While the Department of Justice handled many high-profile cases over the past year, many questions remain, including whether DOJ is investigating former President Donald Trump and his allies for their efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. Meanwhile, the criminal cases against January 6 rioters are heating up. The first rioter to stand trial was convicted on all counts, and a grand jury indicted the leader of the Proud Boys on multiple charges, including conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. In other news, the Republican National Committee sued the January 6th committee, seeking to block a subpoena relating to RNC email campaigns. And DOJ launched a task force to target Russian elites who are aiding and supporting Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Preet Bharara and I discuss all of this and more on the Cafe Insider podcast. Today, we are sharing a clip from the episode with listeners of Stay Tuned. To hear our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership for just $1 for one month. You can do that at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. We look forward to having you as a part of the Insider community. We should remind folks, in two weeks and two days, we have a live show in New York City. If you're in New York City, you should come. If you're not in New York City, there's transportation mechanisms to come to New York City. We have Ben Stiller, actor, director, writer, uh, and activist, longtime supporter of refugees, which is obviously a very relevant issue at the moment. And chess grandmaster, once the best chess player in the world, Gary Kasparov, who was very vocal and smart and influential on all issues relating to Russia and Ukraine. So it'll be an interesting evening. We'll have some fun. We'll have some laughs. We'll also be serious and contemplate what's happening in the world. That's at New York City's Town Hall. Get your tickets now at cafe.com slash events. Sadly, you can't be there, Joyce, right? I can't. I have to teach that day, and, and I'm bummed out that I can't fly up. I'm a huge fan of Kasparov's pro-democracy work. During the uh, Trump years, he wrote and thought a lot about what it meant to slowly slide towards authoritarianism. And I think early on, maybe people thought he was an alarmist. But ultimately, he was proved to be pretty accurate and dead on the money. I'd love to hear what he has to say now. Um, anyone who shows up for this is going to have a great night. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. There's a debate that I hope to get into with him about how aggressive we should be, whether there should be, you know, additional arming by the West of Ukrainian forces, whether there should be a no-fly zone. And there has been a respectful dispute among Russia watchers between Gary Kasparov, who's on the more aggressive side, and some other folks. And so I'm very, very interested to hear how he responds to people who think that he's being too aggressive on it. So we'll see. Come on March 31st and you'll find out. Should we talk first about this trial conviction? The first of its kind, even though 750 plus people have been charged? This is a, a really interesting prosecution for more reasons than one, but Refit, a Texas man, gets found guilty by a jury. The jury returned their verdict really quickly. It's important for a couple of reasons. One, because it's the first case that went to trial. So we got to see how a jury reacted to the government's evidence. They reacted very well. And then there's also this lurking legal issue, whether or not the government can successfully, in the eyes of judges under the law, prosecute these defendants under this very specific obstruction of Congress charge found at 18 U.S.C. 1512. You know, it's interesting to me, as just a human matter, 
Who was one of the principal witnesses against Guy Reffitt? Yeah, this is very intriguing. Reffitt, after he returned from January 6th, threatened his son and his daughter, and his son ends up testifying against him. His He's son. the original tipster, and he testifies. Is that common in your experience? That's pretty unusual. Pretty unusual. We've had it. I've seen it. I can't remember a case in which a child testified at trial, but there certainly have been statements made and evidence brought to bear by family members that happens from time to time. I think we had a case once where a, a brother flipped on a sibling. But this is very unusual. It doesn't happen a lot. It's not something that the DOJ you know, really pursues. But it sounds like this son, the witness, he's the one who came forward of his own accord. Yeah. he. You know, there's a reporting that they had a family text loop, I guess, like we all do these days. <laughs> theirs is a little different. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they're they're going back and forth about what the dad did. And, and in advance of January 6th, he's making, you know, big claims, lots going to happen. And then by the end, he's saying, I didn't break any laws. But the son tips off the FBI. And there's a threat that's made here where the father essentially says to the kids, if you snitch your traitors and traitors get shot. And that, I suspect, was pretty powerful with the jury. Yeah. And also would cause people to maybe, depending on their perspective and their feeling about family, you know, to, to forgive the child's move, you know, 19-year-old child's move of testifying against the father, who, by the way, made a few, a few other mistakes, including videotaping himself. <laughs> and so, as we said earlier, he didn't actually enter the Capitol, but he was engaging in violence, apparently, according to the evidence, just outside the Capitol, up to staircases that are part of the Capitol building. And then he says, in, in a way that must have been very powerful at trial, in narrating the video, quote, I said I wasn't leaving till I got in there. I didn't make it in there, but I started the fire, end quote. Clearly, big fan of Billy Joel. You know, he also said, we're taking the Capitol before the day is over. And I wrote a comment in my the margin of my notes and put, do not film yourself committing crimes. <laughs> I think that that's going to be a big theme in these prosecutions, though. We see more of this with Enrique Tarrio, the head of the Proud Boys. Yes, yeah, so we, we should talk about that, too. Why don't you briefly highlight that arrest? That's another individual who didn't make it into the Capitol either, but has nonetheless been charged with federal crimes in connection with January 6th. You know, Tarrio's story is a little bit different. The reason that he was not in Washington on January 6th is because he had been prosecuted for desecrating a church. I think he also had some weapons with him, and a judge ordered him out of the District of Columbia, which is why he wasn't there. But it turns out that he was orchestrating the Proud Boys' activities from afar, and so we got this delightful footage of him being arrested early in the morning in his underwear in what was really sort of a surprise. There hadn't been a lot of talk about this. I don't think it was unexpected. But the, the timing was interesting because it follows on the seditious conspiracy indictment of members of the Oath Keepers, including their leader, Stuart Rhodes. And one of the very interesting details in this indictment, which drops a lot of interesting details, is that there is a meeting between the leaders of the two different groups before Tario left the District of Columbia. Yeah, so very interesting. So, you know, it's clearly the case that DOJ has made strides in trying to hold people accountable, even people who weren't there and people who are higher up in the food chain. So that's something to be gratified by, but it still doesn't answer the question that we keep asking and that keeps being asked of us. 
What about people in the White House? You know, it doesn't, but it's, and you never know what to read into these details that DOJ puts into indictments. But they do mention that Tario had a a nine page document titled 1776 Returns. (laughs) And that use of 1776 is um, interesting. Marjorie Taylor Greene also used that in connection with January 6th. This document, I, I think it's important to say that some people are talking about it. Oh, this was the master plan for January 6th. And it wasn't exactly that. It didn't mention taking over the Capitol, but it did set out a plan to occupy crucial buildings in Washington and, and sort of talked about some of the things that we know in hindsight these folks did, you know, holding open the doors to get in a lot of people to, to create more confusion. So I'll be interested to see how that document plays as this case develops and what other evidence the government has and just how high they're they're starting to go. Because I think you and I have talked in the past about the fact that Stuart Rhodes, the leader of the Oath Keepers, seems to have been in touch with Roger Stone. We're sort of starting to get into that war room at the Willard and, and perhaps into other places. And Could that lead into the White House? We don't know, but Merrick Garland has told us that he'll go wherever the evidence takes him. So you mentioned a legal issue that we should address. And to set the table for it, it's worthwhile to explain to folks that ordinarily you have a single defendant or a group of defendants and they're charged together with respect to some event, a bank robbery, a murder, a drug transaction, whatever the case may be. And then it goes to the court and The judge makes decisions about the evidence and maybe will dismiss some charges and let others go forward, preside over the trial. Then there will be an appeal. And so the legal issues are answered in one streamlined court proceeding with appeals available to the parties, right? Here, you have a gazillion, that's my other favorite number other than bazillion. (laughs) You have a gazillion cases, many of which are going to different district courts and different judges around the country basically alleging the same crimes and testing the same statutes. And so you start to get some variation. Overwhelmingly, so far we've seen, this usage of the obstruction statute has been held up, even though it's been challenged by a number of defendants. I think nine or 10 judges have said it's fine. There's one judge, I think Judge Carl Nichols, who has said essentially the obstruction charge doesn't fit. And we should take a minute and explain that. The statute 1512 says, among other things, whoever corruptly alters, destroys, mutilates, or conceals a record, document, or other object, or attempts to do so with the intent to impair the object's integrity or availability for use in an official proceeding, or otherwise obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding, or attempts to do so can be fined or imprisoned on more than 20 years. That's a mouthful. But essentially, Judge Nichols has said, and tell me if you agree with this, that you can't merely obstruct or influence in the way that some of these people are alleged to have done. Your obstruction has to relate to a record or a document or an object. That seems silly to me because as I read a moment ago, there's the word or in there, right? You destroy, mutilate, or conceal a record, document, or other object, or otherwise obstruct, influence, or impede. So you have the word or, and you have the word otherwise, which means there are two different ways to be guilty of violating that statute. Is that fair? It is. Judge Nichols' reading of this statute is really tortured because you don't see how the statute is laid out when you listen to it. That word or comes at the end of a clause that's marked as, you know, one. And that number one clause talks about altering, destroying, mutilating records or documents. And then at the end of that provision, it says or. 
And there's a paragraph two, which says otherwise obstructs influences or impedes any official proceeding. That's the sort of catch-all provision that we're used to seeing in statutes. And it doesn't operate as though it's somehow modified by the paragraph that precedes it. There's a, a lot of gymnastics going on in this judge's opinion as he tries to adopt an argument that has been advanced over time by people on the right, that this statute 1512 can't be used. And I actually have a thought about this, Preet, because the 10 or so judges who have said that DOJ can go ahead and charge under this statute, they are, they are district judges. They are trial judges. These cases, some of them will go up on appeal and a court of appeals, the District of Columbia Court of Appeals, will be asked to rule on that same issue. And even their ruling won't be final. Certainly one or more of these defendants will ask the United States Supreme Court to hear this matter. And either the court will decline to hear it and, and affirm the lower courts, or perhaps the court will hear it. But there's a lot of uncertainty still about whether DOJ can successfully use this provision. I think the odds are it can, but there's still uncertainty and this is the lead charge, by the way. I mean, this is the best charge that DOJ has brought so far, absent the seditious conspiracy indictment against the Oath Keepers. It's a 20-year penalty, maximum penalty. It's a statute that fits the crime. If you're looking at folks like Trump and his inner circle, this is a very likely charge. And with legal uncertainty hanging over the head of this statute, I, you know, I would like to have that resolved or at least have a little bit of comfort from a court of appeals before I start charging a former president of the United States. Yeah, although it, it it doesn't work by way of a vote. So an appeals court can certainly side with the legal reasoning of one judge over nine or 10 other judges. But it just tells you where the weight of authority is. And although it can happen, it seems unusual, not because you have 10 judges on one side and one on the other, and the appellate court will say, well, it's 10 to 1. It's likely the case that the arguments and legal reasoning of the 10 judges is superior to the one. That's why there's 10 who were appointed by different presidents. I haven't gone back and, and checked the pedigree of all of them. But if you have that high a number, they must be judges appointed by presidents of both parties over time, that that's the likely result. And common sense tells you that also. It's such an outlier opinion. The reasoning is just so flawed when you think about the purpose of the statute, right? This is supposed to make it possible for prosecutors to criminalize folks who are obstructing these official proceedings. And the notion that you could only do that if part of your conduct involved destroying a document just doesn't make any sense. Well, for, for another reason also, right, that you have attempt language in here. So obviously the thing that was going on in Congress at that moment was the counting of votes, the certification of the vote, you have some of these folks by their own testimony and self-recordings saying that that was their purpose and intent to undo or, or stop or impede that counting and that certification. And although they weren't successful and some of them didn't even enter the building, you know, both of those subsections, one and two, refer to attempts to do so. You know, even by the narrative of many of the defendants themselves, they were certainly attempting proudly and brazenly to impede an official proceeding. It's as simple as that in some ways. I think that's fair. And I just don't think that this judge's opinion flies, but it does really inject some uncertainty into the proceedings. And with my former appellate chief's hat on, I'll just say that appellate lawyers, that means the solicitor general, really dislike uncertainty and like to have these questions resolved before they see them come up in major cases. You know, bad law makes bad facts. 
If there's any question if and when the former president and those around him are indicted, you don't want that to be the test case. You want one of these earlier cases to be the case where the Supreme Court either rules or or passes on the opportunity to rule, meaning that they agree with the lower court and says, no, this conduct is broader than just destroying documents. There have been some other developments too. You know, lots of subpoenas flying and efforts to, here's a reminder, quash, quash the subpoenas, <laughs> not squash. The latest example of that is the RNC, the Republican National Committee, is seeking to quash the subpoena to an RNC software vendor because the committee is trying to get documents related to the RNC. They have any- Thanks for listening. To hear the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership for just $1 for one month. That's cafe.com slash insider. To the many of you who have chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work.